Did you grow up in the 70s, 80s, or early 90s? Then you might want to tune into Gen X Grown Up, the podcast by Gen Xers who refuse to outgrow the things they grew up loving. Join the Gen X Grown Ups each week to talk media, tech, toys, and games from yesterday and today through the eyes of Generation Xers. You can also enjoy their Backtrack episodes, where they choose a single topic, like The Walkman, and dig in deep to discuss why they remember them so fondly. To find their podcast and YouTube channel, go to genxgrownup.com. The word idea. Think about how many times you might use the word without even thinking about it. Great idea. Bad idea. Hey, I've got an idea. But what is an idea? And how does the concept of an idea help us solve problems and imagine solutions as humans? This is your host, Craig James, and you're listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. From ancient philosophy to modern science, we'll explore the questions that will shape civilization for years to come. Today, I'll be joined with Tony McCaffrey, who helps us see that the greatest ideas and solutions come from a very important source that we often miss. It's the stuff right in front of our eyes. Tony holds a doctorate in cognitive psychology, a master's degree in computer science, philosophy, and theology. Bridging these two fields, Tony has created a software platform called Brain Swarming. In this episode, Tony and I explore the very idea of an idea and how humans come up with ideas to solve problems. But it's not as easy as you think. Our intuition is often wrong. Tony's insights bring us new ways to solve problems efficiently and effectively. Tony, are you there? I am here. Well, this is very exciting, Tony, and thank you for making the time. I'd like to take you back to something you told me once before. When we were talking about what is an idea and how do we imagine this concept of an idea, you invited me to a story. You spoke to these two animals on a prairie. There's one that's compelled to seize this fruit, and it's like, I, I've got to have that fruit right now. I'm going to take it, put it into my dwelling, and this poor little animal finds that this big piece of fruit won't fit in the hole that is the entrance to his dwelling, and he's stuck, leaves himself vulnerable to other predators. And then there's a second animal, and this mammal is like, wait a second, hold, hold the fort here. I want that fruit. I really do. But if I take that fruit, it's going to get stuck in my dwelling. I'm going to be freaked out. I'm not going to pay attention. And I'm going to be someone else's lunch before I know it. And it was like this ability to, this other creature has the ability to anticipate outcomes from a certain action taken or not. And you're a cognitive scientist. So help us understand here, the, like what, what goes on? What's different between the one that didn't think, imagine the outcome and the other one did. Share some of that with us. Right. So I have the new theory about how creativity arose in mammals especially. And the first mammal can only focus on what it's perceiving, the fruit in front of it, or its memory of the hole where it lives. But it can't combine those two and merge them into one imaginary scene. So it's either fixated on perception or memory. The second mammal can actually blend those two into one scene and kind of get an image of will the fruit fit in the hole? And it combines the two images of the fruit and its home hole. And it just feels that it won't fit. It feels there's something wrong and goes on and finds other food. So that's the key moment when creativity was born 
when we can blend something we're perceiving with something we remember and see them together as one. We can get a flash, an image of those things in our minds. So, Tony, if I may probe into this a little bit, I'm hearing you say that, and correct me if I'm wrong, an idea is something that doesn't yet exist. It is the ability to imagine something yet to become. Is, is that correct? Yes. And even further, it's, you can have an idea of something that doesn't yet exist. There's all this crucial thing a lot of neuroscientists talk about, that everything we do is geared toward acting out again in the world. We perceive things, then we develop a plan of response, and all these ideas, like for the little mammal, is to act back on the world. There's this perception-action cycle. And in this case, it is, yeah, it's something that doesn't exist yet and may never exist. Part of creativity has to do with being able to remember back, imagine forward, and somehow assemble this all together into a picture that I guess we call imagination. Well, when talking about an ambiguous concept, you know, what is an idea, the, the pragmatic piece is important, and action related to an idea makes it real, makes it reality. Otherwise, it's just a thought. And I think it's very interesting to ponder, you know, how we automatically know when we hear an idea. This is a table, is a statement. It's a thought, but it's not an idea. But if you said, hey, hey Craig, let's clean off the table and wash it. Now, now that's an idea because it sounds, like I hear you saying, it relates to an action that could happen. Yeah, exactly. That's It's an action that can happen. It hasn't happened yet. It might be possible or impossible. You could say, hey, Craig, let's get this table to levitate. Well, good luck doing that, but that's an idea. Or more mundane, hey, Craig, let's set the table for dinner. Do you find out, Tony, you're involved in figuring out how to solve significant problems? So your example of let's make this table levitate at first sounds impractical, but probably some of the greatest advances in humankind has to do with stretching beyond and imagining things that don't seem possible. Anything that's matter of course today was crazy a hundred years ago. Oh yeah, so crazy ideas that seem impossible now might lead to new technology. So I'm thinking of Elon Musk's idea. Let's use a suction tube, the kind you find at a bank drive-in when you send your stuff in a little tube to the teller let's use that to transport uh, merchandise and eventually transport people what if we could do that and so it sounded like a crazy idea but now there's <laughs> startups testing these out on and on smaller scales and and dreaming it up and try, trying it out Years ago, I woke up from a dream with the idea that we as humans, together, could solve problems before we even knew what the problem was. I imagined a massive compilation of human knowledge, many answers without questions. I called it Earthbrain. I shared this dream with a friend, and that friend told me about an article I had to read in Harvard Business Review. It was an article by Tony McCaffrey. I was captivated by the story Tony told. It was the story of the Titanic. It goes like this. Big ship sailing along hits iceberg. Iceberg sinks ship. Many people perish. The antagonist, clear, big, bad iceberg. Icebergs sink ships, period. But it's not that simple. Or it didn't have to be. See, there was more to the story, to the secret life of an iceberg. 
As it turns, the Titanic remained under power for some time before it sank. And a little-known fact is the fact that the deck of the ship was about the same height of the iceberg's flat surface. The Titanic could have maneuvered to the iceberg, leaned gently upon it, people could have walked out, climbed on the iceberg, could have been saved. Saved by the iceberg, not from it. But no one saw the iceberg as a lifeboat. Not captain, nor crew, not a passenger. They were fixated on the iceberg as a ship sinker. The concept is called functional fixedness. This is when humans see an object in only the way it's traditionally seen or used. It's a mental block of sorts. Tony's body of work is all about breaking through that mental block and seeing more of what we usually don't see. My conversations with Tony through the years have led to many fascinating inquiries about the problem of problem solving, creative thinking, and the very idea of ideas. Well, Tony, this is interesting. Tell me a bit about the things that either foster our ability to think bigger, to create great ideas, to look at things differently, and what are the things that get us stuck? I think there's a notion of, uh, I think you call it uh, functional fixedness, that has to do with when we're trying to figure something out, we don't see the things that are right in front of our eyes. Could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Right. So... Practically, if I give you an electric plug and say plug it in, well, you, you develop this habit. And so your neural system is very good at making this shortcut. Okay, plugs are for plugging into a wall and transporting electricity to something, my, my laptop, say. So when we develop this habit and the neural system is very efficient at, you know, making this automatic for us, then we get stuck with that's the only thing that that plug can do. But if I gave you a, a lamp on a wall and all you had was the lamp on the wall and there's nothing else in the room, well, that lamp has a plug and I ask you to unscrew that from the wall and you have no tools, nothing in the room. Well, you're gonna have to figure out that that plug at the end are there these two rectangular flat pieces of metal? And they may be an ideal candidate for unscrewing that lamp from the wall. So I'm tempted to go right into what do we do about that, but, but hang on to this for a second. I'm going to stay in problem mode for a moment. If we could chat about the reasons why we get stuck or stay stuck, what is it that happens that keeps us from thinking beyond the plug? <laughs> right. Our neural system wants to become very efficient, and it's a very efficient learner. And it would be a drag if every time you came upon a plug, you'd have to figure out what it was for, where it went, how to insert it into the outlet in the, the wall. And if you had to resolve that problem each time, you would, it would be really a drag and you wouldn't learn anything. But the neural system wants to create, you know, very efficient at learning, create these shortcuts, plug is for this. So it's very great for everyday life, so we don't have to relearn everything that we come upon. But if we want to be creative, it causes problems. We have to fight against that. Or in other words, we have to let it happen and then come up with ways to broaden our thinking. So it's interesting, Tony, you're making me think about computers and humans are different, but you're helping us understand that in many ways, computers and human 
humans could be similar. I think what you just described is almost like computer programming where we take an object of code and we reuse it. We don't have to rethink that object over and over. We plug it into other contexts. I hear you saying it's that kind of a thing. Right, so I'm saying a habit or an automated response is very mechanical and it helps us through our day be very efficient, but it makes us kind of machine-like in that aspect. And we have to know, come up with techniques to help us get over that and broaden our thinking. And that's, that's what a lot of my research is about. So efficient is one thing, effective is another. And I hear you saying we can fall into traps of habit that are repeated, maybe reliable, but not necessarily effective in really making human progress. And that story of the Titanic, where no one could see the iceberg as a lifeboat. What's going on there? Like, why can't we see these things? And what can we do to be able to see what's right in front of our face? So why? Why does it happen and what can we do? Well, we develop a habit when we see an object. So when we see an iceberg, we think it's for, it's in terms of tragedy, something to be avoided. And that's its purpose or that's its use for us. And so when we see a doorknob, it's for turning and opening a door. And that's its one and only use and purpose. To overcome this habit, which is very good for everyday life, so we're very efficient. We know what a doorknob is. We know what to do with it. We know to avoid icebergs. We need to step back and describe it generically. Because the moment we say iceberg, we go off and associate, oh, that's bad, uh, stay away from it. But if we describe it generically in terms of its size and shape and material, we would might say, well, it's a huge floating surface that is so long and so tall and so wide. And as soon as we describe it that way, we have a chance, a big chance to notice that's what we need. We need floating surfaces and that lifeboats are floating surfaces and we don't have enough of them. So we need to find other things that float um, also. So the interesting thing about being stuck is that we don't even necessarily know it when we're there. You know, we think we've expanded our thinking, but we're actually only beginning. And this becomes a little more tangible and understandable when we think in concrete terms versus the abstract. So you've got a problem, you've got an issue. Candles are great, but they start fires. They burn down houses. So you come up with a product idea. Let's invent a self-extinguishing candle. How do we go about that? So imagine for a moment, simple task. What is a candle? And tell me a thing or two about it. So you might be thinking about light or heat, or perhaps maybe you think about wick or wax. And if you try to think anymore, you pretty much are exhausted in what you think about a candle. If we think of only wick, wax, light, and heat, we don't come up with innovative solutions. So what do you do? And here's the problem. The problem is that's called functional fixation. You're fixated on certain features of the candle. But if you could expand your thinking further, if you could imagine things like motion or weight, now think about that for a second. You don't really think about a candle moving, but it does. When it burns, it's physically moving down, becoming smaller. And as it becomes smaller, it's becoming lighter. Okay, you could say, well, so what? Why does that matter? 
Imagine a cantilever. Imagine a teeter-totter, a weight on one side, the candles on the other. And imagine a hood over the candle. If the candle becomes lighter as it's burning, it becomes elevated. As it elevates, it goes into the hood. Candle extinguished. So that's the magic. You can't force yourself to think about new ideas if you're limited in your thinking. And so this is called expanding the taxonomy or expanding your perception of the object and its features. And Tony has more than a thing or two to say about that. How do we get unstuck? How do we broaden our thinking? Yeah, well, there's several ways people get stuck. The one you mentioned is the most well-known is called functional fixedness. And there's a technique uh, that's got a fancy name, the generic parts technique. But really all it is, is you take the object you're working with, say the electrical plug, and you start breaking it down into all its pieces. And so you got the, you know, the plug itself, you got the prongs that come out and you say, well, prongs still kind of are, I'm not sure what that is. So let's break that down more. And you say, oh, they're rectangular, flat metal pieces spaced about three quarter an inch apart, usually have a little hole in the end. And once you start doing that, you, it might resemble oh, a flat piece of metal that's rectangular, and you say screwdriver. So this technique is about describing the object more and more generically, breaking it down to its parts, using very general language instead of prong um, and plug, using very general things about its material, its shape, its size, and all its parts. And that's very been very effective. A technique I created and people who use it in my research would solve about 67% more problems, two-thirds more problems than people who didn't use it. So one of the things that was fascinating, like in the example of the candle and the idea of the problem being, gee, how do we create a self-extinguishing candle? We had to look beyond wax and wick and heat and light, and the power of thinking in terms of motion or weight and other taxonomies or features were very expanding in driving toward an innovative solution. Tell us more about how that can apply to different kinds of challenges or problems. Right, so Kemp created a taxonomy or a category system, if you want, of about 50 different types of features that any physical object could possess. And so the, in the candle example, people notice its color and shape a lot, but they don't notice that the candles are motionless. And we went and created the self-stuffing candle based on what people overlooked. Another example is I worked with a company and they wanted some new uses and variations for these little plastic pouches that stand all by themselves and they tear at the top and reseal and you can put a lot of things in like you could put they they sell candy they sell trail mix they sell dish pods dishwashing pods all kinds of things and the company was said we're probably overlooking a lot of variations and new uses for this pouch that stands by itself so again all i did was pull out this 50 different types of features, we went down it to see what we were overlooking and then innovated from there. And very quickly, we found that 
we were overlooking that all pods that we sell, all little pouches, excuse me, all pouches that we sell have something in them. Well, why not sell empty pouches? And so next to your sandwich bags and freezer bags, you just sell empty pouches, let the customer decide what to put in them. We also noticed for the first time that all pouches sold have one compartment inside. Well, why not make it two compartments? And you can have your cereal and your milk separated, or you can have your salad dressing and salad separated and combine them at the right time. And this master list helps us notice things we're overlooking about the object we're trying to innovate on and then helps us uh, create new, new designs very quickly. Interesting. So there's the power of looking at the thing, the object, and expanding the features or the taxonomies associated with the thing. Is there also an expansion of the problem and how we look at the goal? I think one of the things that's unique about humans is that, again, we can come up with things and ideas sometimes before we even know what the problem is. Is there a way to look at problems differently? There's another way people get stuck. It's called goal fixedness. And so however the problem's described to you, you often stay very close to that phrasing. So if I told you I wanted to reduce concussions in football players, uh, you'd probably stay very close to the original phrasing, reduce and concussions. So you'd say, well, I want to lessen the trauma. I want to reduce the impact. It's all very close. But if you use a thesaurus, a good thesaurus, you're going to come up with all kinds of different ways to rephrase the goal, and that'll trigger new associations. And so one that was especially helpful was oppose force or repel force. And once my business partner saw repel, it triggered in him the association with magnets because magnets repel or attract. And so the idea was to magnetize football helmets with the same pole so they want to stay away from each other. And little tests in the lab showed that head-on collisions were transformed into little glancing blows. And so it had lots of potential to help. That's an example of rephrasing the goal in Wild, seemingly wild ways, but using a lot of uh, synonyms from a thesaurus. Clearly, language has a lot to do with it. The language of an object, the language of a goal or a problem. And I'm hearing also that it's essential to trust our sort of counterintuitive thinking. Things that don't seem to make sense might make the most sense of all. And I think of yet another example correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe there was a challenge to adhere Teflon to a pan, which is counterintuitive because Teflon's slippery stuff, not sticky stuff. How do we stick it to the pan? Tell us a little bit about that one. Right. Yes, that was another getting stuck by staying too close to the way the goal was phrased. So adhere, when I examined it very closely, assumes all kinds of things. You would when you adhere something, you assume chemical processed glue. You assume that there's two surfaces. You're adhering this to that. There was a whole list of about 20 assumptions that 
you make when you utter that verb. And so I played with getting out of those assumptions and once again, come up with a magnetic solution. I like magnets, I guess, but they're often overlooked. They're very mysterious. And so I created a Teflon, what I call a Teflon sandwich, in which you have your coating on the one side with a little metal material, ferrous material in it. Then you have your Teflon in the middle, and then you have a magnetic surface on the back. And so the, the coating is not really sticking to the Teflon, it's sticking through the Teflon because it wants to be close to the magnet behind it and the Teflon gets stuck. It's a potential solution that the engineering company really liked. So it's interesting. It appears that for ideas to really take flight, we need to think about the language we use, use different language, have the courage to go to the counterintuitive. Most great ideas are bad at first. Many were persecuted in the past for coming up with a new idea that was against the religion of the time. So we have to overcome a lot of things that are automatically in us, it sounds like, in order to get beyond those sticking points that limit our, our progress. Interesting. I'm sure we can all identify with it. You know, have you been in that meeting where, before you know it, there's an individual, the alpha in the room, you know, the extrovert, who jumps in and asserts his or her idea, and before you know it, all the momentum, all the energy, and all the added thinking and ideation centers around that one person's thought. And before you know it, you're down that path and there's no going back. And instead of expanding our thinking and pursuing additional ideas that might really be the solution, we get stuck on the one that we started with. And the irony here is that in history, quite often, the best ideas in the long run are the ones that are initially, out of the box, feel like bad ideas. You know, you think of the saying, great idea or best idea since sliced bread. You've probably heard that saying. Ironically, sliced bread was a really bad idea initially. If you slice bread and you didn't have plastic back when they only had paper bags, slicing bread too early meant it went bad faster. So sliced bread was a lousy idea until someone had the insight to think ahead. And that was Wonder Bread. It took like 18 years, but they had the future view that there's going to be plastic. And when there's plastic bags, sliced bread's a great idea. Out of the box, it isn't. So it begs the question for me, how often we, we might be in a meeting or working together, or you think to yourself, well, that's a crappy idea. That's a bad idea. For all we know, that might be the best idea in the long run. And it forces us to think differently and to hold back with judgment for just a second. So this leads to the question around how we traditionally think as a group and how we work together and come up with ideas. And the notion of brainstorming being effective, but only so much so. And Tony has a new view on how we can work together in those settings, and it's called brainswarming. Brainswarming is modeled after ants and how they work together when they forage for food. When an ant finds food, as it's bringing it back, it will leave a pheromone trail, chemical trail, all the way back to the nest, and the other ants can then pick up on the scent and lead, it straight to, lead them straight to the food. So based on the ants, how they work, I have this visual graph that's especially designed for problem solving, in which people put their ideas or even small ideas or traces of ideas on the board at the right place 
and they break down the goal in different ways and they break down the resources and it's all very visual and silent and they're really they're acting like ants they're leaving traces that other people can pick up on to solve the problem and this silent visual method inspired by ants helps overcome a lot of the pitfalls of brainstorming of talking together as a group so there's some ancient wisdom and some of these other creatures that cohabit this planet with us, isn't there? And we think we're so smart with language and we say all of this great stuff, but maybe it's more of a barrier than we realize. Interesting. So what's the result? Like what happens when all these traces of idea elements are strung together? Is it a more balanced view or a more comprehensive solution that the group comes up with? What's the, what's the outcome? It's a much broader view of all the aspects of the problem. And it's all visual right in front of you, all the different ways the goal could be rephrased, all the different resources and how they're broken down into features. And you don't forget things as easily because in one glance you can see, oh, this has been overlooked. We need to focus on this part of the graph. Not many people have contributed to it. And so as opposed to brainstorming, People tend to channel in a certain direction and kind of reach consensus too early. The visual graph helps them keep their breadth of options open longer before they start coming up with solutions. A couple of things I hear is that this is a way to see the problem differently. Sure, when we brainstorm, we might write things on a wall or a whiteboard but we don't really see the broad nature of the problem and the potential solutions. At least that's what I'm picturing based on what you described. And maybe one of the key elements here is our capability to imagine. Maybe that's what makes us a little different. If there's an example, like you've gone through a brainstorming, so we can imagine the application. If you could explain the visual experience like the little uh, pieces of food or trails, they're post-it notes or they're words on notes, or how does that look? In the Titanic example, if you just put your goal at the top, put people in lifeboats, well, that goal has a lot of biases and hidden assumptions in it. If we look at the word lifeboats in the goal, then we say, well, what's crucial to lifeboats? Let's step back. Generically, they, what do the, we, they need? What do they do? They float, they're made of wood. So it's not lifeboats we need, it's floating things, it's perhaps wooden things. So would participants in brainstorming write that on a post-it note and then like put that up on the board next to the problem or by the, how would that happen in a brainstorming context? Yeah, so the first phrasing of the goal, put people on lifeboats, would go on a post-it note at the top of the wall or board. And then we start examining it and saying, oh, lifeboat has a lot of assumptions and say, put people in floating things. And we'd refine the goal and that would go in another post-it note kind of just beneath it and put people on wooden things. And that would go in another post-it note just beneath the main goal. Then we'd ask the question, well, what are other floating things and what are other wooden things we have around? And so at the bottom of the graph, We'd start to flesh out all these resources we know are on the boat that float and are wooden and perhaps other things. So you get 
dining room tables and doors and storage trunks that people took and instead of suitcases back then and wooden planks and then oh floating things what's around that floats oh the iceberg itself and so all these resources would be toward the bottom of the graph and as the top of the graph grows down we refined it from put people in lifeboats to put people on floating things and all the bottom things across the resource across the bottom they start growing upward and all of a sudden the two connect and we go oh my gosh we could ferry people to the iceberg or we could build a raft out of these steamer trunks we could tie them all together and make something floating we could put planks between the lifeboats and make another surface that's out of the water you know tony the the real tragedy in the real tri- Titanic situation is, I don't know if you know this, they, they knew this this process back then. Um, they thought about it b- before you did. The unfortunate thing was they were halfway through the process and a big wave came up and got all the post-it notes wet. So that's a bummer. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, it didn't work out after all. <laughs> you know, I'd like you to explain how you can ward off all risks to the brainstorming process so nothing ever goes wrong. Obviously, I'm messing with you. Thank you for being a good sport. That was perfect. I realized in talking with Tony that when we look at problems, we are unconsciously limiting how we look at it. And I learned that if we change our thinking and expand it, we can come up with solutions we wouldn't otherwise imagine. And what's really powerful is realizing that that's just about what goes on in our brain. If we do that together, in a group setting, we can do amazing things. Next week, we delve into not only what we can do during our lifetime related to thinking and problem solving, but also visit the very idea of life. We discuss different worldviews that may suggest that death is an illusion and that life and consciousness are entities separate from our physical bodies. We'll explore provocative topics such as reincarnation, remote viewing, and out-of-body experiences. Our guest will be Stephen Hawley Martin, and he'll get us thinking. This is your host, Craig James, and you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. A special thank you to my co-executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, Bridget Coyne. Editor, Julie Fink. Audio engineers, Eric Coltnow and Andrew Balserzak. Music director, David Allen Moss. Writers, Bridget Coyne and Madeline Coyne. This program is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and Front Porch Media. Thanks for listening. And until next time... Don't just be audacious, think audacious. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.